Today's New Testament passage is Matthew 26, 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through our series on the, chat, on the book of, of Matthew. And actually, as we come to the final chapters of the Gospel of, of Matthew. And is the church, is, is that community that, that's, that's called and crea- uh, crafted and created by the Word of God? Let us turn to the Lord in prayer, asking that He would apply the truths of this Scripture deeply to our hearts. God, our Father, we thank You for who You are. We thank You for all that You've given to us. We thank You for Your Gospel. We thank You, Lord, for what's proclaimed to us here in this passage, Lord. I pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions for this passage, Lord, and that you would work them deeply into our souls, into our heads, into our hands, into our hearts, Lord. That we would receive, that we'd receive the gift of Christ and that we might grow more fully into the image of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So if you've been here for the last few weeks, uh, before we were working through Jesus' final sermon, and, and this was his instruction to the disciples on the Mount of Olivet, and suddenly, in today's passage, we find ourselves in a series of, uh, the, the first of a series of escalating events that, as we'll see, will quickly lead to Jesus' death, to Jesus' death upon the cross. And as we'll see, these events will confront us with a very important question. The question, is Jesus God? The question that everything else hangs upon. And I want to explore this question as we work through this passage, and I want to look at it under three headings. The first is the rage of the leaders. The second, the devotion of the woman. And the third, the salvation of Christ. So let's look at each of those in turn, and let's begin with the rage of leaders. 
As we'll see, this whole passage is just chalked full of irony upon irony upon irony. And the first that we come to is this. The Messiah, the promised Savior of God's people has come. And who is it that we find most intensely rejects him? It's the religious leaders. It's the ones who daily taught the Old, text, Old Testament text that actually predicted his coming. As Jesus tells the religious leaders in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The religious leaders, they're like students that are working hard to learn a foreign language. Maybe you yourself have been there. They're memorizing flashcards and grammatical rules. Their mouths are sore with all the hard work that they put into pronunciation. But when they actually travel to and arrive in that foreign country, they can't understand what anyone is saying because the language is, is, is so different than what they imagined. It sounds different. It moves quicker. And what do they do in response? Well, they tell everyone else that they're speaking the language wrong. They tell them, hey, you're, you're speaking your own language wrong. This isn't how I pictured the language when I was studying it in the classroom. And so all of you must be wrong. And this would, of course, be ridiculous, but this is actually very much like what we see the religious leaders doing here. God has acted. God has promised his Messiah. He has sent his Messiah. God has spoken decisively in the Old Testament. But the religious leaders are certain that God's words cannot mean this. The words of the Old Testament, they cannot mean Jesus. They're certain that God is saying it wrong. No, God, no, God, all of your promises about a perfect prophet and priest and king, they all mean something else. They don't mean this rabble-rouser from Nazareth. And so the religious leaders, they close their eyes and they shut their ears no matter what happens. Because think about what's happened so far. We've gotten through a lot of Matthew at this point. And Christ has done things that only God can do. Christ can teach as only God can teach. Christ has spoken as only God has spoken. And the religious leaders will have none of it. And what we come to here is the problem of particularity. That a particular reality is this and not that. Even if I desperately want it to be that. Language learning gives us a helpful analogy again. The philosopher and novelist Iris Murdoch, she says this about the importance of submitting ourselves to a language. She writes, If I am learning Russian, for instance, I am confronted by an authoritative structure which commands my respect. The task is difficult. My work is a progressive revelation of something which exists independently of me. Love of Russian leads me away from myself towards something alien to me, something which my consciousness cannot take over, swallow up, deny, or make unreal. If I'm going to learn Russian, I have to learn Russian as it actually exists, with all of its vocabulary and grammar and pronunciation, and not as I wish it 
were, not as I wish it existed. And this is the struggle of the religious leaders. Again, God has spoken, God has promised, and God has fulfilled his promise in the particular person of Jesus Christ. Murdoch must learn Russian as it actually exists if she's going to speak Russian. And the religious leaders must learn God as he has actually acted and revealed himself in Christ if they are to know and to love God. We might alter Murdoch's words to say the following. If I am learning Christ, I am confronted by God himself who commands my worship. The task is difficult. Christ is a revelation of something which exists independently of me. Love of Christ leads me away from myself and towards something alien to me, something which my consciousness cannot take over, swallow up, deny, or make unreal. This is the dilemma of the religious leaders. Jesus has appeared, and they were not what he, they were hope, he was not what they were hoping or expecting. Jesus has come, and he's condemned their practices at the temple. He's pushed against their legalism and the extra rules that they've added, especially those about the Sabbath. Jesus has shown that they have neglected the mercy that God calls for. Jesus has given dignity to those on the margins. Jesus has upset the very status quo that they've worked so hard to establish. Yes, the religious leaders want a Messiah, but they don't want this Messiah. They assumed that when the Messiah came, he would confirm all of their own deepest suspicions and ideas and opinions. They assumed that the Messiah would just be like a big version of, of themselves, already on board with everything that they were already doing. And we should all step back and, and think about this because this is the position that Christ puts all of us in. No one is fully comfortable with Christ. Christ does not affirm everything about anyone. If he did, he wouldn't have needed to come. That's the whole point. Think about it. If Christ is the answer to God's promises, if Christ is God the Son become human, if Christ is the one true God come to meet us, come to address us, come to shake us from our sleep, come to save us, then Christ will not conform to our expectations. In fact, if he did, this would be the first warning sign that we're not actually following God, but only ourselves, only our own wishful thinking. Instead, instead of Christ, we would come to, in Murdoch's words, something that we have taken over with our own consciousness, something we have swallowed up, something we have denied, something we have made unreal. In that case, I've simply made God an extension of myself. If God is God, if he made you, if he alone lays out the path to your true flourishing and joy, if God alone knows your true depths, if he alone is wise and good and holy sovereign, then wouldn't you expect to be surprised by God? Wouldn't you expect to be taught by God? Wouldn't you expect to have some of your own thoughts and preferences confronted by God? Wouldn't you expect God to know better than you? And here's the thing. All of us, each and every one of us, short of full and perfect sanctification, we will be made uncomfortable 
by Christ. Christ tells us things about our money, our generosity, our sexuality, our responsibilities to our neighbors, our idolatries, and a million other things that we would rather not hear. Again, if this is God, these are things, these are truths that point to our true joy and flourishing, but we would still rather do things our own way. And here's the thing, this is very important. The religious leaders, for all their faults, they realize the stakes of who Jesus is. They hear what Jesus is saying. They're listening to his words, they're watching his actions, and they hate him. So much so that, as we see in this passage, they're secretly devising a way to kill him. And on this score, they might actually be doing better than us. How so? Well, again, either Jesus is truly God become human and worthy of our worship, or he is not, and he is a contemptuous fraud. The one thing that Jesus can't be is merely interesting. Jesus is either everything or nothing. And if he is, in fact, everything, and you never took the time to search him out, to investigate his claims, to truly struggle with his own question of, who do you say I am? Then you are avoiding the most important question that life has set before you. As C.S. Lewis warns us, you must make your choice. You can shut Jesus up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The religious leaders, they understand what Jesus is saying. And they have decided against Christ. They hate him and they want to kill him. They understand that Jesus must either be worshipped or condemned. They understand that, again, the one thing Jesus can't be is merely interesting. So yourself, maybe, maybe you're considering Christianity, but you worry about what Christ will say about this or that area of your life. And that's an important question. But it's not the first question you need to ask. The first question you need to ask is, who is is he God or is he not? Everything, absolutely everything follows from that question. Because if he's not God, who cares what he says or does? But if he is God, then yes, what he says and does will surprise you. He's God. And if he is God, what he says and does is of the supreme importance. You should hang on his every word and action. He's God. The religious leaders, for all of their faults, they realize what is at stake here. They've decided against Christ, but at least they've made a choice. And Christians, too, we have to remind ourselves of this. If you're a Christian, ask yourself, have you become comfortable with Christ? Has Christ ceased to surprise you to astound you, to confront you. 
Perhaps you yourself are no longer reckoning with Christ as God. So let us follow the religious leaders in making a decision about Christ. But let us not follow them in the decision that they've made. And that brings us to our second point, the devotion of the woman. As the religious leaders are plotting to kill Jesus, Jesus comes to the house of Simon the leper. And while he's at the table, a woman comes to him and she pours extremely expensive ointment upon his head. In fact, in in Mark's recounting of this event, we're told that this ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii. And a denarius was about a, a day wage for a worker. And so this ointment was valued at about a year's salary for an average worker, which is a lot of money. So much so that the disciples are are angry and they're offended. They, They see it as wasteful. They're indignant at the woman. They wonder, why would she do this? But again, either Jesus is God or he isn't. Everything hangs on that question. And look at where this event happens. It happens at the house of Simon the leper. And what this context tells us is that this man, Simon, has been healed by Jesus of leprosy. Otherwise, he would not be hosting this meal at his home. Those with leprosy had to separate themselves from others. They weren't able to be involved in this kind of social interaction. And again, Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And there are only two times in the Old Testament that leprosy is suddenly healed, and both times are by God. In 2 Kings 5, Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, he comes to the land of Israel to be healed of leprosy. But when the king of Israel finds out about this, he actually tears his clothes in distress, and he says, Am I God? Am I God? Am I God to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Am I God to kill and to make alive? In the Levitical system, leprosy symbolized death, and the king of Israel makes it quite clear that only God can directly and immediately heal such an affliction. And yet, in the case of Naaman, At the instruction of Elijah the prophet, Naaman washes in the Jordan River seven times and immediately he is healed. God heals Naaman. Only God can do this. We see this in the other case of the uh, the healing of leprosy, and that's with with Miriam, Moses' sister. Moses, he also knows that only God can heal her affliction, Moses comes to the Lord directly, and he prays in desperation, Oh God, please heal her. Please. Only God can heal leprosy on the spot like this. And he does. Moses knows that God alone can do this. The king of Israel knows that God alone can do this. And this woman who has anointed Jesus, she knows this too. The religious leaders, however, they don't seem to know this. 
Again, the very ones who had likely taught these Old Testament accounts of Naaman and Miriam many, many, many times, they're the very ones who fail to see what this account means and who it points to. They are sure, at least, and they insist that these accounts do not mean Jesus. But again, this woman understands. She knows the scripture. And who can heal leprosy like this but God alone? Christ has healed the leper. Christ is God. And so think about this. What would you do if you were face to face with God? Christ just is God, the Son, become human. Really, really think about that. If you were face to face with the one who made you, who created you, who sustains your every breath, who gives you the very gift of life every moment of your existence, who holds together every atom in the universe, what would you do? Would you be stingy? Would you yawn? Would you merely be interested? Would you hold back your greatest gifts? Would you check your budget before you invited him to dinner? Would you check your schedule? Would you be tight-fisted with your hospitality and welcome and generosity? What does this woman do? She does the only reasonable thing that anyone can do. She is face-to-face with God. She is face-to-face with the one who made her, who loves her more deeply than any other, who offers her the great joy of himself. And so she gives her most valuable gift to God, her ointment. Think about that. Here's the thing. All that she can ever really give to God is what he has already given to her. As Paul tells us, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything we have is a gift from God. This is true of our every talent and faculty, our every relationship and opportunity, and certainly every single one of our resources. We are called to work faithfully to steward these things. Yes, and that's hard work. But we have to remember that everything we steward is a gift from God, always and only a gift from God. God in his sovereignty and his orchestration of all things, he has gifted this woman this expensive flask of ointment. God has arranged all of history before the very foundation of the world that this woman would have this very flask. God gifted it to her. She has it because of God. She knows this and she doesn't hesitate to praise him with it. And we and all that we have are in the very same situation. In Christ, to borrow an illustration from C.S. Lewis, he receives this woman's gift, as does a father who, who joyfully receives a gift from his child, a gift that was bought with his very own money. And Christ is pleased with his daughter. He declares, Why do you trouble a woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Can you imagine any parent saying anything different as as they unwrap the present that their children have have, have given to them? The the, the present bought with the very $10 that the, the parent gave the child when they all entered the store? Absolutely not. 
And if Christ is truly God, what else can this woman do? Again, the disciples are indignant. They protest that this ointment should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. Christ, however, tells them, you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Christ here is not saying that we should not care for the poor. Think about the passage that came just before this one, the passage of of the final judgment that we looked at earlier. Remember how deeply Christ identified with the least of these, with those who were in need of the love and care of others. Christ said, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But Christ is saying that here is something special. Again, Christ has come to this woman. God has come to this woman in the flesh. And what else can she do? What else can she do but bestow her greatest gift upon him? Again, God has gifted this to her. What can she do but what she's done? And here's the thing. In a sense, we are always in the situation of this woman. In a sense, we are always before the very face of God. We just don't realize it. As Augustine tells us, he is closer to us than we are to ourselves. He is more present to us than we are to ourselves. His face is closer to us and before us than our own face or the face of others are to ourselves. And if Jesus is God, it is absolutely impossible to outdo him in love and generosity. Again, all that we have is already a gift of his giving and his generosity. And so when we think about all those things, again, it makes sense to rage against, the religious, uh, against Jesus as the religious leaders do. And it also makes sense to fall down and worship before Jesus as the woman does. But there is one response that does not make sense. And that's what we see in Judas. Judas goes to the chief priest and he asks, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And what do the chief priests give him? They offer 30 pieces of silver. And commentators note that the great difference between the the woman's ointment and Judas's 30 pieces of silver is, as one commentator writes, the high price of the woman's ointment contrasts sharply with the low price Judas settles upon to betray Jesus. What is Judas's response to Jesus? He responds to Jesus with a kind of meh, meh. What is Jesus worth to Judas? 30 coins. But again, this is not a reasonable response. This is neither rage nor worship, but a kind of apathetic self-interest. He's valued Jesus. He's valued God at 30, 30 coins. This is what God is worth to him. And this isn't a meaningless price. As we'll see in chapter 7, it's, it's, it's enough to buy a small field But again, it's nothing compared to the price of the woman's ointment. Judas sells God for an insubstantial price. But we have to ask ourselves, have we tried to buy God at this same insubstantial price? Do we? Do we tend to think of our life as a kind of tithe where we give 10% of each of our resources to God, and then we are free to use that other 90% in any way we see fit? 
God, here's 10% of my money. Here's 10% of my schedule. Here's 10% of my career. Here's 10% of my future plans. Here's 10% of my reputation. The rest is mine. We've paid our dues. We've done what we needed to do. We've given God that 10%. And now I'm ready to use my time and my money. We might call this the, the spiritual equivalent of, of, of working for the weekend. But if God is God, this response makes no sense. God is not your tax collector. God is not some duty that you have to complete. And if Jesus is God, again, he is either everything, and he requires full and total commitment, and 30 coins is a measly amount. Or he's not God, and he's nothing. And even 30 coins is much too high a price. Jesus is either worth everything or nothing, but he cannot be worth 30 coins. And that brings us to our third and final point, the salvation of Christ. Again, is Jesus God or isn't he? This is the question that we're faced with. This is the question that all of us have to answer. But maybe you think the very particularity of that question, that it, that it forces us into a false dichotomy. Perhaps you, you think we actually need to reframe the whole issue and, and, and just say that, that Jesus is one of many ways to God. He's one way to God among many. Perhaps we think all religions lead to God. Perhaps we assume that any good religious teaching will primarily give us advice and instruction and commands that we should live by. Perhaps we think that whether or not Jesus was God, he was a great moral teacher who, who told us how to live a life that will take us to God. And if the primary message of Jesus is what you must do to be a good person so that you can come to God, then absolutely it would make sense for any number of religious teachings to get you there. If it's primarily a matter of us coming to God by what we do and how we live, then absolutely any sufficiently good life, however we might define that, that'll take us to God. If that's the case, then yes, we can actually pass on that question of whether or not Jesus is God. But the problem is that that's not who Jesus has revealed himself to be. To repeat an earlier quotation from C.S. Lewis, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. But why would that be? And that's, that's, that's an important question that, that we need to work through. If Jesus was a great moral teacher, then actually he would be quite in line with the religious leaders. Consider what happens in the following chapter, in, in chapter 27 of Matthew. We find that Judas actually comes to regret his decision to betray Christ. It was to the chief priest that Judas came and from whom he received the money, and it's to the chief priest that he returns the money. And Judas tells them, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And how is it that the chief priests reply? What is that to us? See to it yourself. Judas then throws the silver coins in the temple. He leaves and then he goes and he hangs himself. And there's a deep tragedy here. Judas seems almost to repent. 
but he comes to those who foundationally misunderstand who God is. Judas comes to those who speak for God, but theirs is not the God who saves and rescues and lifts up the broken. Theirs is a God who places the demands and the weights of our life solely and only upon our own shoulders. Judas comes and we come sorry, sorry and regretful for our sin. We come seeking forgiveness. We come seeking mercy. We come seeking grace. And what do the chief priests tell us? What is that to me? See to it yourself. Do better. Work harder. Yes, you've done wrong, but that's on you. There's nothing that I can do about it, even if I wanted to. God has laid out the commands. Do them and be saved. Fail them and be condemned. See to it yourself. And that's a heavy burden. It's actually crushing. And for Judas, this offers no hope at all, only despair. And so Judas here, in a sense, he's finally come to terms with things. If Jesus is not God, then God has put the whole weight of our life upon us, upon our shoulders. And for Judas, who has made an absolute mess of his life, who has betrayed the only true innocent blood, the truth, this truth, if this is true about God, this can only mean his own condemnation. This is the God taught by the chief priests. What is that to us? See to it yourself. And we can go further. This is also the basic logic behind statements like all religions lead to God. What this means, whether we realize it or not, is that the weight of our whole life, the demands to live a good life, these burdens are wholly upon our own shoulders. We are the ones who must walk the path to God. We are the ones who must fully follow the commands of some religious teacher. We are the ones who must restore our relationship with God. We are the ones, not God. We are the ones doing the seeking and the finding and the reconciling. In some way, shape, or form, we are embracing a God who says, what is that to me? See to it yourself. If all, if all roads lead to God, then we are the ones who must see to our salvation ourselves. If we simply, and it goes both ways too, because if we, if we simply say that everyone is, is good enough, and if we're already in a good place with God, then where's the justice? Will every evil just one day be swept under the rug? If there's no divine judgment upon anyone or anything, is there any true justice at all? As Tim Keller tells us, he says, the call for no true or ultimate justice he says, this is a theology that can really only take root in the bubble of the suburbs, safe from the harsh injustices and evils of the world. A God of justice is most offensive to those who have not experienced the deep and true injustices of this world. In all things considered, speaking as a person who has lived a fairly privileged life, you can perhaps count your life a privileged one if you find the God of judgment to be in bad taste. And we ask, well, then what is good enough? What's the cutoff? What's the passing grade? Is it a 70%? And what if I'm at 69.999? What's good enough? And how can I be sure? Again, if all roads lead to God, then it is us who must walk the road. 
And here's the thing. This will either make us self-righteous and prideful, like the chief priests, because we think we are one of those few who are living a life worthy of God, or it will crush us like Judas, because we know that we are not. In the end, if all roads lead to God, we will either think that we are one of the righteous or one of the lost souls. Either we will swell with pride or we will be crushed with despair. Either you think you will measure up and and you will be insufferable or you will know that you don't and you will be miserable. A Christless Christianity A Christianity that does not claim the absolute necessity and full saving sufficiency of Christ's life and death and resurrection and ascension. A Christless Christianity, either in its conservative or its liberal forms, is going to be a religion of self-righteousness. One form will take its self-righteousness in its personal conduct, the other in its public consciousness. But both will claim their own self-righteousness and not the righteousness of Christ. But again, if Jesus, this Jesus is God, then everything is different. And this begins with the chief priests themselves. Ironically, again, the irony continues. In the amazing sovereignty of God, these priests are still performing their priestly duties. They are still offering a sacrifice on behalf of the people to cover the sins of the people before God. They just don't realize it. In fact, they're actually offering the very greatest of all sacrifices. The priest will come to slaughter the true and better lamb, a sacrifice greater than any sacrifice of the Old Testament. They will offer the sacrifice, in fact, that all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, the great irony of the passage continues. In rejecting, in, in rejecting God and killing Christ, they actually perform their most significant priestly duty. Who is this Lamb? It is God become human to live the perfect life of love before God and neighbor. It is God become human to walk that perfect path to God for us. It is God come to fulfill all of the commands that he has given to us. Christ is the very logic of the following words of Augustine. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Even more, Christ is God taking the punishment that we deserve for not living up to this perfect standard. Christ is God taking the judgment of God, the just judgment of God upon himself for all of the evils in this world, for all of the evils in our own heart. And if God calls for a truly perfect love, then no one, least of which these chief priests, can claim that they're living, that they're achieving such an ethic. The chief priests sacrifice this perfect lamb of God upon the altar of the cross. And Christ, of course, knew this. He, he tells his disciples exactly what will happen because he planned all of these things before the very foundation of the world. That's because Christ is God coming to us to save us, to fulfill all of the requirements of a perfect ethic and a perfect justice for us. If all roads lead us to God, If we don't need to ask about the particularity of Jesus, then your relationship with God is founded upon what you do, 
However, if Jesus is God, then your relationship with God is founded upon what God has already done in Christ in your place. He does not come to show us one of the many ways to God. He comes as God, as the way, as the truth, as the life. This is not God coming to us, but us coming to God. If all roads lead to God, we can look anywhere. But if Jesus is God, then we must look specifically at Christ Jesus. We must look at what God has actually done in history in Christ. And when we come to Jesus, when we place our faith in him, when we pour out our broken hearts before him, Jesus says to us with a love, a love that destroys both our self-righteousness and despair, he says, my child, that is everything to me. I have already seen to this myself. This is the great high priest, the God who does not simply sit back and make us come to him, but the God who loves you so much that he seeks you and he has sacrificed himself for you. If Jesus is God, then that is the beautiful and wondrous and glorious God that we serve. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that, for what you've done for us. We thank you for the salvation that you've worked in Jesus Christ. Help us to cling more fully to Christ. And Lord, help us to realize the great gift that Christ is. And may it open our eyes to all of the many wonderful gifts that you've lavished upon us. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power and the efficacy of his Holy Spirit. Amen.